0: Hi, this is Emma Gannon and welcome back to the Success Myth Diaries. This is a brand new mini-series to accompany my new book, The Success Myth, Letting Go of Having It All, which is out on May the 18th. My book unpicks the eight success myths, from happiness to money to productivity to celebrity to the idea of arriving forevermore, and I look at all the different ways that traditional success is constantly marketed to us and how it can often take us off track to what really makes us feel happy and fulfilled in life. To celebrate, I'm interviewing a selection of people I admire about what success means to them, and I've asked them to come with three success myths that speak to them. Today's guest is the British actor Sean Clifford, probably best known for playing Claire in Fleabag and, of course, reading the audiobook of a novel called Olive. She's also a friend of mine, and I'm loving her substack. It's called Still Space. And Still Space was actually born back in 2015. She describes it as a philosophical and exploratory space for people through long form writing and a place to support those who like her feel summoned to create change. So I encourage you to not only check out the amazing TV shows that she's currently in on Netflix, but also her brilliant substack and here, Shan discusses her three success myths, the then and when theory, the myth of busyness, and the myth of perfectionism. So I hope you enjoy this episode with Shan Clifford. So I'm thrilled to have my lovely friend and the amazing writer and actor, Sean Clifford on the Success Myth Diaries. Welcome.
1: Woohoo.
0: <laughs> That's
1: the first time I've been referred
0: to as a writer in public. Wow, you're an incredible writer, Sean. I love your Substack so much. And actually, that was sort of why I had you in mind to talk on this podcast, is actually one of your pieces on there called Access Hollywood for anyone who wants to go and check out your Substack. But we'll get into that. I did interview you around like seven years ago for a podcast back in the day. So it's nice to do this
1: again. Yeah, that's when we met. That's when our friendship blossomed immediately. Um, And in fact, we had to re-record it because the sound was terrible when we were in. I can't remember where we were. Um, And I think we were both more focused on eating delicious food and falling in love with each other.
0: <laughs> and I'm glad my podcast skills have improved since then because that was ridiculous, me trying to record with you in a busy bar. Um, so the, the the point of the Success Myth Diaries is to talk about the success myths that mean something to us. I talk about the eight success myths in my new book and I'm fascinated to talk to you. So the first one is the myth of then and when. And you talk about this beautifully in your own words about how we kind of put things on pause for this like future moment where everything will be sorted and our life will be perfect. And, you know, then, then, then. Would you be able to explain a
1: bit about that? Yeah, I can't remember where I first read it. It's definitely not an original idea of my own, but yeah, the when and then theory, which is like when I have this thing or have done this thing, then everything will, you know, be okay, or I will feel happy, complete, fulfilled, like I've arrived. I mean, you talk, I know in the book about arrival and completion. And I think we want these fixed points. We want we want certainty um, and we want guarantees. And it just, it's so unrealistic. The longer I live, the more of a tightrope that life feels like, not in terms of its danger or anything, but in terms of like its you never know what what the next step is going to be. You never know what's in front of you. And even when those things do arrive, they never ever feel or look how you imagined them to be. But it's something, yeah, I fell for hook, line and sinker for sure. It's a cultural myth. It's just in the ether. It's what capitalism is founded on, that you need something outside of yourself, external validation or an object of desire in order to feel fulfilled or feel complete.
0: Yeah. Cause I guess to put this in context then, cause if you look back and even think of your childhood self and then they see you in the future, you know, in LA or on a red carpet or winning a BAFTA, you know, you have got to those when and then moments now. Yeah. So what did they feel like? And, I suppose you have an insight to this that actually not that many people do you can talk about it from the point of you did get there
1: I did it's it's literally my BAFTA is literally right <laughs> you know what it's funny because like I can still feel in physically in my body the reaction like the experience that I had when my name was announced and it's a visceral thing it's a really Jumbly, exciting, busy, like overwhelming feeling. But it's momentary. It was almost traumatic because I had nothing prepared to say. I started to cry. I mean, I was just, it was also, it was weird. It was virtual, it was a virtual ceremony because it was during COVID. I'd never take it away, but I think for me, because it wasn't necessarily something I aspired towards. It wasn't like a thing that I wanted. But I think it was more that since having won it, I think there are expectations attached to winning an award that haven't come to pass. So, for example, you sort of think, and and other people think this of you as well, that like, oh, you've won a BAFTA, you must be sorted now for life. That's what people would think, yeah. And that your career in particular as an actor is like, it's only up from here. And actually, I I think the it's the opposite because... When you reach a pinnacle like that, there are very few directions <laughs> that you can go. in. I still audition way more than people realise. I'm I mostly audition still for parts. I do get occasionally get offered things, and that wouldn't have happened if I hadn't won a BAFTA, or certainly if I hadn't been in Fleabag. But also, like being in a show like Fleabag, which was enormously successful um, critically and publicly, but it was also an extraordinary experience for me to go through with my friend. And so seeking equivalent experiences uh, is, it, that's the real challenge for me because there's, there is nothing like it. You do just sort of go, is this the best thing I'll ever do? Maybe as an actor, I didn't reach for awards or anything necessarily, but you do want to be in something amazing. And I guess you do want to be recognised. I had all that, but yeah, the aftermath or the reality of it is, well, what what next? Like, how do you improve on that?
0: Yeah, I saw an interview actually with Roman Roy. Oh, what's his real name? Aaron Culkin. Talking about how he was, he knew he was going to go through a period of grief when the last scene was shot. And I thought that was really interesting that he already knew what he was in for with that ending. And, and actually this kind of leads us on Um, before we move on to the next myth, I really wanted to ask you about how you write about ego versus soul and how you've even named that ego part of yourself, which we all have, Martha. Yeah. Do you think that, because sometimes like for example, with my new book coming out, like like it's nice when something validating happens. I, I like it, but I'm also really aware now that that's not gonna scratch the itch for long. And is it about going like, oh, okay, I'm human, so I'm going to have an ego moment? Surely it's not about shoving away, Martha. It's about welcoming it in a bit.
1: Always greet your ego with compassion. If you try to resist your ego, it will eat you alive. I think just having the self-awareness of what's happening, that it will buffer your ego. I think that's the most important thing, just having the awareness and then consciously choosing how much or not you lean into that and for me it's the difference between achievement and experience so if you treat it as an experience as a human experience and an extraordinary thing that you get to live through because not many people get to in their lifetime rather than an achievement which feels much more like a stopping point I feel like experience like lends itself well to a bigger picture and that they're being more to being a human than that I feel like it sort of dissipates the when and then because when you talk about
0: Fleabag I always get the impression that that was a hugely successful moment for you but not because of the BAFTA really and not because of all of the shiny stuff It was because you made something with your friend and it was it was really very soulful and creative and I think that's why it was successful but it, it was so much more than that.
1: Well, I've um just spent two weeks in a rehearsal room with Phoebe Wallabridge, um working on our next project. And I can't tell you anything about it, of course, but I can tell you that the you're absolutely right. The relationship that I have with that woman and with our little gang of flea bags mm-hmm. is so it's it's completely unique. It is like a company of actors or creatives who just really respect each other and respect each other's work. And when we come together, something magical happens. Like it's true collaboration. Uh, No one's precious. The trust in, in the room is extraordinary. You will try things you would never dare in another room. And it's the first time we've like properly done focused work together since Fleabag. And it was extraordinary. And we're all completely bereft and fingers crossed, you know, we can keep working on it and, it, and um, you know, we get to do this project. But, yeah, that was the thing. I think Fleabag started as something incredibly small that was really truly about creative endeavor and about someone taking a risk and, uh, and someone taking a risk on me, you know. Um, you know, my friend, she gave me that opportunity. I mean, I still had to audition, but she insisted um, when she was not in a position of power, that it had to be me. And she risked herself in that way, you know. So. Uh, yeah, so, yeah, 100 percent, it was it was as, it was just about um a group of friends making something with love, and and all the other stuff is just a total bonus, and still a bit of a dream. Even if you're
0: not working in that way or in that industry, that really resonates to think of things as an experience. What's really interesting about the theory you've just shared as well is that the goalposts always keep moving, and I wondered if you had experienced that.
1: Yeah, so I think the other side of it not only not arriving in the shape or the feel that you're expecting them to and not meeting your expectations in that way I also think that they will never be enough if that's what you're always reaching for that it will never ever fulfill you
0: it not being enough is very important because you always think it will be that's the trap even now I'm like yeah, yeah, but if I get this amount of followers and I don't really care about followers, but I still think when I get to this number, everything will disappear
1: because I'll be happy forever. No matter what tools you have at your disposal, no matter what restrictions you put in place to support yourself and protect yourself, the infrastructure of our culture does not allow, it will not allow you to be free from these traps ever. And and if you're going to be a participant in any way and we have to be because we all have to earn money to live that is the capitalist structure that you cannot break free of it and it's like I've really really tried to extrapolate myself from numbers so like I have an Apple watch but I never ever record anything on it Like I never, like when I'm exercising, I don't tell it I'm exercising. I did when I first got it. I was like obsessive about it. I was doing like my, checking my heart rate and my oxygen like every every hour. We've become obsessed with measuring our worth. It's complete nonsense. A friend of mine, I said to him, what figure would your bank account have to read for you to ever feel relaxed? And this uh, guy, he's a producer um so he's pretty well off honestly um so by by most people's standards uh, he's an american producer as well so it's a completely different league and he couldn't he couldn't give me a figure wow and he tried even then he just kept going up and i was like that's more money you could than you'd ever spend in a lifetime we always want more if the thing that we're chasing is this intangible thing for sure and that's why it feels very
0: rebellious push back on it and be like, actually, I've got enough. But it's very countercultural to do that. So your second myth is about the myth of busyness equaling success. So I know you have been very busy recently, Sean, because you have been in many things that launched pretty much all at the same time on Netflix. And I didn't understand quite how you had maybe been cloned or something, because I just didn't get it. But to this is about busyness and i'd love for you to talk about it because i know that you also really value not being busy and i know you and i know that you are very calm centered person so how do those things work
1: (laughs) i'm really good at giving the impression of calm (laughs) yes i I know (laughs) Um, there are many layers (laughs) and um i mean i only remembered this Um, because you asked me what my success myths were and this popped into my head out of nowhere but when I was first establishing my company still space back in 2015 one of the things I wrote in my mission statement was about destroying the myth that busyness and burnout equates to success that we um, see people who you know are working themselves to the bone or even like that whole um you know you haven't worked out properly unless you've puked like what what is <laughs> like the no, no pain no gain um and i remember just from like my days of temping that whole political thing of like being the first in and last to leave and um and i've even though there's part of me that definitely relates to or resonates with the contrarian um thing that you discuss in your book, which I absolutely love, I think there's part of me that bought into it for sure and the that whole um i'm I'm crazy busy, I used to say that all the time and i I will never say it now i'll I'll tell the truth and I'll say i'm overwhelmed or mm-hmm. I'm overloaded or but it used to be like a real badge of honor, and even recently there's been a couple of people that I've taken a long time to respond to um and you know and I've apologized um I've stopped explaining myself so much or I'm trying to stop explaining myself so much and justifying you know and I've just said you know sorry I haven't got back to you sooner and then I don't explain why sometimes I write out the excuse and then delete it and I'm like this is progress yeah exactly because what is that need to like constantly justify and I think it's tied into the same thing which is to like oh I'm, I'm the busiest person no I'm the busiest person no I'm the busiest person and yeah and I, I did say some someone about busyness and in fact I had two people respond to me in the last week or two busy is good and I was like what are you talking about? like what how do you know
0: It's like a scarcity mentality that, isn't it? Like got to grab it while you still can. And it's like, well, hopefully
1: we'll have long careers in our own way. (laughs) Yeah. And I think particularly in my industry, I mean, to be honest, I would say any freelance industry, there is a real, it's not even a culture. It's just the way things work, unfortunately, is it, it is feast or famine. And the reason that all those, yeah, I mean, I had... I had three projects came out on Netflix within a month. And then I had a movie come out two weeks after that. But I had obviously some of those things I'd filmed nearly two years ago. So it's just like how long things sit in editing rooms or, you know, things get delayed because another movie is getting released. And, you know, these are all things you learn as you're doing it. I had no idea. But Yeah, to the outside world, I'm exceptionally busy, but actually I haven't um, done any acting work apart from this um, wonderful workshop that I've just done since September. So I haven't been working. I've actually had, I needed a break. Um, I'm getting itchy feet now and I'm, I'm waiting to hear if I'm getting a second series of Unstable, one of my Netflix shows. And I know that it's that part of me that's like, you should be busy, you should be busy. But I am busy. I've been doing my Substack, and I've just been redirecting my time and my energy in another direction. But there's still a part of me and it is, it's like this, the terrified actor. And you'll hear Judy Dench talk about it. You'll hear like the most established, most experienced actors who, from our perspective, are never out of work. They have the same fear, which is that you won't work again.
0: Yeah, I heard Richard E Grant talk about this recently. Yeah. Um which kind of makes sense how he has such a lovely Instagram presence where he's always sort of seemingly by a swimming pool and it's because he's probably in between work as we, you know, as so many of us are. And I think it's really interesting though that you have that perspective having been so busy and then having a long break because it's making me realize that no one actually knows People have such a projection of us. Like I get it all the time. People be like, God, when do you sleep? You're so busy. And it's like, I've spent all day in my dressing gown. (laughs) So actually, if no one really knows the truth, it's up to us to design our
1: days in a way that feels good, which can be hard. And that's where, for me, that's where structure can serve you. I think too much structure will make you very rigid, but you need some structure as in support. That is what structure is actually Mm -hmm. for. It's like your skeleton. People like we want to be healed, or we want to know that this relationship will last forever, or we want sense of fulfillment and completion, but actually life is perpetual change. Yes. And that's so challenging to accept. But that is it's the only constant is change.
0: I'm curious as to whether you have any grounding tools that you use when you're really, really busy and when you use when you're having more time off. Is there anything that you go back to?
1: For me. The only thing I would ever offer up is to start listening to your intuition because what's right for me in those moments, likelihood is it's not right for you because there are so many factors that influence. Yes, yeah, you're right. And so that is the my only thing that I could ever prescribe anyone authentically for myself is to say what are your heart and your gut saying to you. And so, for me, it's just if things are spiraling or if things are great, like regardless, it's tuning back in, keep going back, keep going back." And the more you do it, and the more consistently you do it, the deeper that relationship becomes, the louder the um dialogue becomes, the uh, more meaningful it all becomes. and it's and then it does become a dialogue. it's an exchange. it's and it it becomes a part of yourself that you can completely trust.
0: Years ago, actually, when I remember even talking about sort of what you would want to eat that day, that there was like an intuition with you where you were like, oh, I, I think I need this. And I was like, wow, I really wanna to get to that place one day. And I feel like I've really worked hard to trust
1: myself. And it's really powerful. A simple tool, which isn't imposing anything on anyone. If they feel like they don't have a an open dialogue as yet, basically check in and 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 see if you feel expansion or contraction and that can be literally when you look at food or a book or or even hanging out with someone exactly do you yeah do you feel and it's in the in in the instant but you know constantly keep checking in with yourself but that's the that's a big thing for me so the third success myth
0: that you spoke about is the myth of perfection. So this myth of always having to kind of be the best. What inspired you to mention this one? I think that's a real
1: formative one. That's a that's a school thing, the culture of education about being top of the class. It's so antithetical actually to a healthy culture of learning, I think which should be about curiosity and imagination and discovering what it is that you have a true affinity to. And therefore that, that being the environment that you would most thrive in to pursue as a career. If that's what it's setting you up for, that's what it should be all about. But it's not, it's again, it's for me, it's become way too rigid as a structure, having a national curriculum as if one, we all learn in the same way, which we don't and two that we all thrive from learning the same things that's something that was definitely built into me i think as well if you have like a high achieving sibling my sister was incredibly academic and i wanted to play with my toys i mean literally wanted to go and tell stories and um and act them out and that was that was what was fun for me and i did well at school um, particularly at primary school but I became very fatigued and disillusioned by the education system by the time I was at high school. I also had a terrible time at high school, so I just didn't want to participate. But the desire to achieve and to be the best was still there. And I remember actually we were having some swimming lessons when I was at high school and I think I'd forgotten my goggles or something. and So I couldn't open my eyes when I was underwater or I didn't open my eyes. And so even though I was I was the fastest swimmer in of the girls in my year, I like swam across the lane. And because of that, they put me down from the top set into the middle set. There must have still been people in our year group, but who really could not swim. Like really <laughs> just were not. And and it was me and this other girl. And I just remember we were both like absolutely mortified that this has happened. But there was one point where we were asked to, like, help with the, uh, the children because we were too – we were obviously just too good at swimming. But I remember that, like, there were moments like that where, I don't know, being humiliated basically amongst – by, like, amongst your peers um, at school that I think really, really heavily influenced that need to, like, make sure people see me as the best thing and – you know, my life at high school completely changed when I appeared in the school play and being like doing my acting, my amdram outside of school was a very secret private thing. And so we did Little Shop of Horrors at high school and it completely changed my life at high school. Like it changed my status. My status changed. Interesting. Then when you get the sort of popularity and and tension that you all you know everyone craves in those environments. That also gives you a really skewed perspective because it feels really good to be well liked. So what's your relationship
0: with it now? Because it seems like in the acting industry, for example, it literally is based on sometimes people wanting to be the best. Like even the Oscars is like it's literally about winning.
1: How do you feel about that now? I have the Best Actress Award. And guess what? I I feel more insecure as an actor than I've ever felt. Why Um, why is that? I've heard
0: that before, that when people win at something, they then feel more pressure. And it's hard to believe, but I understand it.
1: It's exactly the same as the fleabag thing. It's like once you've reached that pinnacle, where do you go from there? How can you better And it's also the expectation on you to then perform at that level and to be in things that are of that level consistently. That's where the pressure, that's where it can crush you, actually, because you just feel completely suffocated by needing to prove that you are the best. That it wasn't a fluke. It wasn't a one-off. Yeah, it's very stressful. It's very stressful needing to be the best. I mean, most. I feel like a lot of people or actors in particular, when they get up and win an award, there is a lot of like, are you sure you haven't made a mistake? You know, I think it's, it's quite rare in my experience that you get a fantastic actor who thinks they're amazing. Yeah. I think there's a lot of bad actors (laughs) who think they're fantastic. You need a pinch of that self doubt in a way to keep searching and keep looking and to keep improving but not in terms of like beating yourself with it but just being like I think if you think you're perfect you've you've failed like you haven't you've got nowhere to go you know you're not going to get any joy out of it anymore I mean that's where I'm at with my acting but Substack actually has been an like even in this three-month period whether it's just that I'm there's been a shift in me and I'm recognizing it now or whether it's the act of like showing up to my writing on Substack that has created this transformation. But I have definitely let go of a lot of that perfectionism. And I think there's something that you say, which is done is better than perfect. And I totally agree. I've sort of amazed myself at how even when I've it's felt more important for me to post consistently than to sit and nitpick for months and months and months at something um, until I perceive it to be perfect and for it to then go out into the world. Because the reason I haven't uh, written anything down you know, properly or been showing up to my writing until now is because of that fear of of not being good enough and actually you can't develop your craft if you're not showing up to it you can't get better actually and so you need to just do it it's only in sort of a, this reassessment that I'm starting to go through and just going wow there were so many times where you know if there'd been a spelling mistake or something really minor I would have completely flipped out before um, because once you've sent it on Substack, it's gone to however many people's, you know, thousands of people's emails. There's nothing you can do. Like, even if you edit it on Substack itself, it's, there's still a version of it out there which has the mistake. I'm, mu- I'm much harder on myself, interestingly, as an actor than I am as a writer. Elizabeth Gilbert does write about it beautifully in Big
0: Magic. It can be a way of hiding and a way of beating ourselves up, but also a way of like living in fear and... There's something very brave, actually, about being like, "Nope, I'm just going to send it and embracing the imperfections. So thank you for sharing that one, because that is that's a big one. I do think people think success is being perfect. So long live
1: non-perfection. And that you won't achieve success or you won't experience success unless... The thing is perfect, but actually I think it's more about putting yourself out there with a good intention and then seeing what happens.
0: I've only just started realizing that one of my gifts actually is not being a perfectionist because for so long, I thought that it was like Mm -hmm. sloppy or I didn't care and I was just throwing things out, but actually I'm realizing it's like throwing paint on a canvas. I'm okay with the finished product being a little bit messy.
1: And I think that's why you are such a a prolific creator. And I've only just realized that. That is actually where I have sort of freed myself up as an actor, I guess, because I used to be very rigid in terms of anyone that is familiar with Stanislavski technique, which is what we're taught in drama school. And it's also a couple of the directors that I worked with after drama school, like stick by rigidly. And it's a really strict formal way of working and approaching acting. And it's so technical and I am not a technical actor at all, but I didn't realize that at the time. So I sort of completely relied on this way of working and I've since binned all of it. (laughs) And I know that my acting is better because of it. In that context, the script is your form. There's your structure. There are your lines of dialogue now embody that human being and be in the moment and, and, and see what happens. Well, thank you so, so
0: much. I loved that. Thank you for taking us through your success myths. And obviously I could have spoken to you for another five hours, but we'll have to do that somewhere else. Um, and if you enjoyed listening to Shan, please do go and check out her Substack. Is there anywhere else you would like people to go and find you? No, that's it.
1: I am on Instagram, but I'm very <laughs> bad at
0: posting. Amazing. <laughs> Thank you, Sean. <laughs>